From Stanford University and KZSU, this is the Stanford Storytelling Project. We'd sit together in the tan bark, digging for ants, finger painting together in homeroom. But after those first few idyllic weeks of college, it was brought to my attention that she was actually a cunningly constructed android. It's Valentine's Day. In case you didn't get any chocolate, the Stanford Storytelling Project has a present for you. Last week, the Stanford Storytelling Project embarked on one of our grandest traditions. We set up a folding table underneath a shady tree in White Plaza, put up a sign that said, Five Minutes for Love, and began accosting pedestrians. We asked everyone who came to our table three questions. Question one, when was your first kiss? Question two, when have you changed your mind about love? Question three, when did you realize your capacity for love? On this show, you'll hear their shocking, heartfelt, and sometimes extraordinarily awkward answers. And just in case stories from strangers isn't enough to win your undying affection, we've got another Valentine's Day treat. Just like we asked strangers to give five minutes for love at our table in White Plaza, we also asked Stanford students and faculty to submit five pages of love to our editors. Turns out, love thrives on competition. Tonight, you'll hear the surprising stories of our winners. I met a girl underwater. She was blue as the sea. And she whispered to me in bubbles. Come slip away. Let's get back to business. We were talking about awkward kisses. Thankfully, not everyone's first kiss involved spitting in a utility sink or, what was it again? Spotling. Nope. Some kisses were glorious. Some were kinky. And a whole lot were in kindergarten.
met a girl underwater. She was blue as the sea, and she whispered to me in bubbles, "Come, slip away with me. Come on and slip away. Just slip away." Slip away, slip away with me. You've been listening to the Stanford Storytelling Project's Valentine's Day special on KZSU 90.1. The last few kisses you heard, bedroom experimentation, wine on the beach, were pretty sensual. But the good thing about having an awkward first kiss is that usually we don't end up with that person forever. That way, it doesn't have to be sensual, romantic or even remotely enjoyable. For example, I was four when I had my first kiss. I was playing cops and robbers with my friend Anton, and at the opportune moment, he handcuffed me to a yellow plastic chair and dealt me a sloppy one on the lips. I remember smelling the Play-Doh on his breath. If you had asked me what I thought love was just after I had been arrested by a five-year-old version of the man, I probably would have squealed a high-pitched squeal of disgust. Thankfully, I've changed my mind about love as I've gotten older. And as we found out during our day on White Plaza, so has just about everybody else. Sometimes for the better, and often for the worse. Well, everyone else except for one person. I met a girl in the treetop swaying She had a name like two birds singing And we were singing used to be I could only write love poems Though I'd only dreamed of everything I said And then it came, I felt the love of a woman And for a while there my poetry was lived
I used to think there was only one woman in the world for me, and I'd be her man. But now I know that no one belongs to another, and even true love ends. The face of a woman. It's all in the eyes and in the space of a moment. I've died a thousand times. I just slip away, just slip away, just slip away. Valentine's Day special on Stanford Storytelling Project on KZSU 90.1. I'm your host, Rachel Hamburg, and just like many of the people on our last segment, I also got my heart broken in high school. I can still remember sitting in the basement restaurant booth where Matt and I decided we were through. I remember trying to figure out when I should let go of his hand. I still remember bursting into tears in church on Christmas Eve more than a year later. The pastor thought I was having a religious epiphany, but I was only crying because Matt had fractured his arm. The funny thing is, getting my heart broken didn't change my mind about love. I changed my mind about relationships, I suppose. I now know that Matt and I's relationship was limited in a lot of ways, and over the years I've learned to love other people in a more productive fashion. But the most valuable thing I learned from my relationship with Matt is not a laundry list of the reasons why it failed or a general sense of the impermanence of love. The most valuable thing I learned was what it felt like to feel my capacity for love suddenly and then slowly expand. Like the first stranger from the last piece, I fell in love at first sight. He was sitting in a music class, laughing at someone else's joke, and I knew I loved him. Since then, I've felt that again a few times, maybe more hesitantly, but I've felt it. And I'm not the only one out there. For our last segment from White Plaza, you'll hear stories of when people realize their capacities for love. My romance doesn't need to have a moon in the sky. My romance. Don't, 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 don't. 
Thank you to everyone who had the courage to tell complete strangers with microphones their most personal stories. And now, in case your heart is a little too warm, we've got a story about robots and a story about the apocalypse. That's right, our love story contest winners, Max McClure and Heidi Thorson, both approached love from slightly unusual angles. My first love was named Becky. I thought she was spectacular. We'd sit together in the tan bark, digging for ants, finger-painting together in homeroom. But after those first few idyllic weeks of college, it was brought to my attention that she was actually a cunningly constructed android. I don't know why I hadn't noticed. Her hands were both snow shovels, and her face was an oil painting of a rabbit with a mop draped over it. I was embarrassed at having been taken in so easily, and I spent most of my next relationship trying to shovel walkways with my date's hands, refusing to believe what she said, that she wasn't an android, and that the things I'd been adjusting earlier weren't toggle switches. All of this upset me greatly, of course. I hated knowing I could put that much effort into something and have it all disappear. The third girl I dated was difficult in an entirely different way. Love wasn't too fickle in this case. Instead, ironically, it went on too long. Also, the woman was at most only partially robotic. In any case, after the divorce, I started asking myself difficult questions like, did I know how to love? Did I even want love? What was my ex-wife's name? I tried to address these issues with a therapist, and the session began well. The woman asked me questions about my sexual development, and it seemed like she might have been flirting with me. But it quickly became clear that she was an android too, or possibly a department store mannequin. You can tell by looking at the eyes, or at any other part of the body. I was still attracted to her, though. That marriage also ended up lasting much longer than it should have, mainly for the sake of the kids. I was single for a while after that. I hit the bars, had my first kiss. She was a statuesque Brazilian girl who recorded language tapes for business travelers, and we talked for hours about what time it was and what color our clothes were. We could have been an item if I hadn't inadvertently used the subjunctives the night wore on. She seemed rueful as she said goodbye three times, enunciating clearly. It was at this point that love started seeming like too much work. After all, how old was I? Twelve? Fifty? I was alone, I knew that much, and it looked like I was going to stay that way. 
I strongly considered joining a monastery, and even applied to a local Franciscan order, putting in a strong showing at the interview by winning at both Wiffleball and the joint smoking competition. They denied my application anyway, citing my refusal to stop believing in a holy trinity composed of the Father, the Son, and Zbigniew Brzezinski. Depressed, I tried several times to commit suicide by humming James Taylor at groups of raccoons. Being unlucky in love is a positive feedback loop. Because you have no one to impress, your appearance degrades, and because your appearance degrades, you are required to enjoy talk radio. Some of my friends tried to end this cycle by taking me speed dating, which was a disaster. Each round I claimed I was a different Supreme Court justice. By the time I reached Sonia Sotomayor, some of the participants had grown suspicious of my thick German accent, and I left the conference center on the pretext that I needed to jot something down about the Commerce Clause. That night, I stood on the roof of my apartment building and played my saxophone in the driving sleet. I wailed into the apathetic night, thinking only of my past loves, running through the hokey-pokey over and over again until the sun rose and my instrument was completely riddled with bullet holes. When my friends found me desperately trying to hide beneath the ottoman the next morning, they pulled me off the floor and finally asked, point-blank, what was causing my mental anguish. Reluctantly, I explained that it all led back to Becky being an android. They looked at each other in confusion. Becky from college, they said, and I said yes, my first girlfriend. Speaking cautiously, they said, Becky wasn't an android. She was just that girl that went missing a few weeks into freshman year. That's impossible, I murmured, beginning to feel uncomfortable. Watching their faces out of the corner of my eye, I slowly walked to the closet where I'd kept Becky's body for the past several years and opened the door. Inside were the cleaning supplies and cardboard boxes and still lifes that had made up my former girlfriend, carefully stacked, just as I'd left them. Oh, that Becky, my friend said. No, you're right, that Becky was definitely an android. I laughed with relief. I could feel my depression lifting. Thank God we resolved that mystery, I said. It looks like friendship is the only kind of love I really need. Bleep blop bloop, they replied, agreeing. And together we walked out into the street, shoveling away the previous night's slush with our enormous hands. Apocalypse, February 14, 2023. It all began with a question, more of a passing thought, really. Hannah Katz, 25, a part-time student at Union County College in New Jersey, asked, what would happen if everyone said exactly what they wanted to say on Valentine's Day? The subtext of the question, would you and I be telling each other the same thing? Ms. Katz, however, did not possess the courage needed to make her appeal more specific, not to the level of pronouns and certainly not to the level of proper names. Much of her free time is spent reading Victorian literature or watching BBC miniseries. However, Ms. Katz's sadly anachronistic reticence did have the fortunate and unlikely consequence of generalizing her situation to the point of asking the entire world the same question. What would happen if everyone said exactly what they wanted to say on Valentine's Day? You could say it truly was technology that brought the world to an end since, after a nonchalant post on her Twitter feed, Ms. Katz's words were soon circulating in every nook and cranny of the World Wide Web. It was not long before Ms. Katz ceased to exist in the conversation. Indeed, she only continued to exist in the world of 19th century stories that she read with increasing fervor while pining away for the man who didn't realize that he was Mr. Darcy. Liberated from Ms. Katz's obscure name, the question soon became attached to a number of high-profile individuals. It was Oprah who said it first. No, the president. The Dalai Lama. The time for action had come. First, students on various college campuses began standardizing a time and a place, on Valentine's Day, of course, for people to see each other, say their piece, and get on with life. Or get it on, as a few detractors would sneer with a shudder. Soon thereafter, cities jumped on the bandwagon. Libraries, parks, downtowns, even random intersections became some of the designated locations. 12 p.m., the designated time. My wife and I decided we would head out together. Raymond Marquez, 46, of Tuscaloosa, Alabama, explained of his sojourn to the city hall. Felicia Marquez, his wife of 26 years, blushed and buried her head in his flannel shirt while clinging to his side. 
We probably won't be saying anything different from last Valentine's Day. It just seemed right to say it around a bunch of people. In solidarity, you know? At precisely 12.01 p.m., Mr. and Mrs. Marquez told each other the exact same words that they had whispered to each other in a dark room 365 days ago. They didn't even realize that they were the exact same words. Adam Porofsky, 51, and his wife Katrina, 43, agreed ahead of time to arrive at the steps of the New York Metropolitan Museum separately. Neither of them intended to look for the other there, having come to terms with the decline of their marriage. Even before the clock struck noon, Mr. and Mrs. Porofsky passionately locked lips with their private lovers. Yet, for a fleeting moment around 12.01, Mr. and Mrs. Porofsky thought simultaneously of each other. Delia Hersher didn't talk about the February 14th outing with her husband, but he was such the romantic type, always buying her flowers and massaging her feet after work, that she knew she could expect to find him there. They didn't even need communication. They simply understood each other. At noon, Mrs. Hersher arrived at the downtown gazebo in Orange, California, in a white spring dress and a pink sun hat. At 12.01, Mrs. Hersher spotted the back of his favorite sports jersey, the one that didn't make it into the wash as much as it should. As she got closer, she noticed another pair of slim, sun-tanned arms clinging onto his jersey. He was looking into another woman's eyes the way he used to look into hers. Mrs. Hersher resisted the urge to slap him, to tell him how much she hated him, because in the spirit of the day, she knew that she still loved him. I love you, she said, as she brushed by him and walked away. Margo and Andy Peterson, 78 and 79 respectively, bought airplane tickets to Paris, their original honeymoon locale, as soon as the raging social media trickled down to their Iowa nursing home. The couple planned to arrive in Paris early, because they were always early, but they missed their transfer when Mr. Peterson refused to take the complimentary shuttle service for the elderly at JFK. Nevertheless, Margot and Andy Peterson still arrived at the base of the Eiffel Tower early. The Petersons sat in silence together on a park bench for three hours while watching the crowds gather. At precisely 12.01 p.m., Margot and Andy Peterson said nothing to each other. They said exactly what they had come to say. In Fort Collins, Colorado, Jessica Hahn, 20, and Nora Alba, 22, debated whether or not to go to the church parking lot at noon with the rest of the congregation. Sure, but only if we don't actually say anything, Nora told Jessica. Their stare would mean enough, say enough, Jessica thought. But when the time came, Nora spoke honestly and said, Jessica, I can't do this. She darted around the back of the building with Jessica at her heels. There, at approximately 12.01 p.m., Nora whispered, I wish I wasn't gay more than almost anything in the world, except that I wish more that I could make you happy. Jessica's reply, you do, you do. At 12 o'clock p.m. in San Francisco, Natalie Hardy, 31, was still thinking of him, just as she had been thinking of him when she made her oatmeal in the morning, when she scanned her card on the train on the way to work, when her co-worker made an ignorant comment about Shakespeare's sonnets to impress the artificially blonde caterer in the break room. They hadn't seen each other in months. Were they even friends? Yes, she had to remind herself, and she cherished the fact. She strolled into Union Square in her lunch break, knowing that he wouldn't be there, but thinking that the journey would somehow make her unromantic life more cinematic, a justifiable sadness. Staring up at the thinning fog, Natalie heard the sound of her phone ring. At 12.01, she heard the sound of his voice for the first time in three months, two weeks, and six days. At 12.01 p.m. in Chicago, Lawrence Ryer, 17, crouched in the shade of Buckingham Fountain with a red rose in his hand. But she didn't show up, even though she promised she would be there. Even though they promised each other that they would make it work no matter where they found themselves next year, at school across the country or behind the counter of the drugstore down the street. Yes, he had things to tell her, but would it really be the truth? Would it really be the truth when his words were actually directed towards a person who didn't really exist? 
the ideal of intelligence and beauty he saw in his mind? At precisely 12.01 p.m., the sky became saturated with itself and burst into a billion shiny pieces. Imaginary structures emerged from the ground like the lost city of Atlantis, fusing with skylines and empty landscapes to create new worlds as yet unseen. The pieces of sky fluttered to the ground like petals, but then there was no ground. Human bodies were swept up like antique glass buoys on the ocean's surface. They glittered like them, too, in transparent colors. Everything seemed so fragile while holding up the frame of existence on shoulders of unfathomable strength. New memories from unrealized pasts flew in from uncharted directions before resuming their migration into other unknowns. The flapping of their papery wings made the invisible earth dance on its axis. All knowledge was removed from the equation with the kindest surgical incision, in its place, the most subtle substitution, understanding. For once, the stars did not withhold their light. There were new colors, new smells, new senses, and a universal comprehension that this was the end. Detractors maintain that this is absurd. The world did not end, and even if it did, how could it end precisely at 12.02 p.m. everywhere in the world at the same time? The world is round. Time zones are graduated, and if that won't convince you, we're still living. Nevertheless, their doubts will never stifle the faith of Hannah Katz, who, at 11.55 a.m., was prematurely telling the man that she adored how she felt about him for the first time. At 11.59 a.m., they were racing to the remote science fiction corner of the Union County Public Library. At 12.01 p.m., she felt the first touch of his tongue on a part of her skin that had never been touched like that before. At 12.01 and 54 seconds, she let out a soft, exhilarated moan, and in that bliss she knew that her life would never be the same again. This is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends, not with a bang, but a whimper. Today's program was produced by myself, Rachel Hamburg, with help from Aaron Thayer, M.A. Ekpavio, Claire Woodard, Charlie Mintz, and Jonah Willen-Gantz. Thanks to everyone who told us their story in Wide Plaza. And thanks again to our contest winners, Max McClure and Heidi Thorson. Original music for our show was written and performed by Daniel Steinbach and Max McClure. You also heard Fleet Street, as well as a spontaneous mishmash of singers who were out serenading people last Saturday night. For their generous financial support, we'd like to thank the Stanford Institute for Creativity and the Arts, Stanford's Oral Communication Program, Stanford Continuing Studies, and the Hume Writing Center. KCSU would also like to thank the Law Offices of Fenwick and West for their continued underwriting support. Remember that you can find a podcast of this and every episode of the Stanford Storytelling Project on Stanford iTunes and on our website, storytelling.stanford.edu. Tune in next week when we hear how the food movement isn't just about food. It's not. It's about something totally different. We'll tell you what next week. For the Stanford Storytelling Project, I'm Rachel Hamburg. Thanks for listening, and happy Valentine's Day. Give your favorite person a smooch.